You're listening to episode 25 with master storyteller and author Kendall Haven. This episode is brought to you by Drop Counter. Hi, this is Chris Wolf, host of Adventure Hydrology. This is the podcast demonstrating the value of education in the water sector. It's water in real life with my friends, the H2 duo, Stephanie Zavala and Ariane Shipley. We are dedicated to sharing stories that demonstrate how communication and collaboration move things forward. If you want to overcome your challenges, then you have to build relationships. Each week, we bring you an inspiring person or resource to give you the tools to curate connections with your customers that create impact. So, uh, Ariane, when you worked for the city, you knew who the high water users were, right? You know, the ones indifferent to our conservation messaging. Yeah, well, we for sure knew who the biggest offenders were, and we could rattle off the top five or so. You know who you are. But, like, how did you know? Was it obvious? Did people complain about them? Sure, we had some neighborhood intel, but we mostly read through spreadsheets, queries, and (laughs) numbers. We did site visits. It wasn't quick or super effective, but there was a process. Well... Our friends at Drop Counter can equip staff with any technical skill with the means to quickly and efficiently filter through your customers based on household characteristics and consumption behavior. You can draw polygons over neighborhoods of interest and send direct, immediate digital messages to your intended audience. Ah, so super helpful for communicating things like routine flushing? Yep. Job Counter is the quickest means of communicating with your customers. Learn more about Job Counter at theh2duo.com forward slash drop counter. That's D-R-O-P-C-O-U-N-T-R. People aren't interested in ideas. They're interested in people. If you listen to episode 12, it was our Water Nerds Guide to Storytelling and a lot of the information that I talked about related to the neuroscience behind storytelling, which came from the research I found by Kendall Haven, who is our guest in today's episode. We chat with Kendall about his decades of research that demonstrate the power of story, how our brains are hardwired from birth to process all information by putting it in story form, why providing information in story form makes your content more memorable and impactful, and how your greatest storytelling resource are the people of your organization, plus so, 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 so much more. Get your notepads ready, y'all, and without further ado, let's get to the show. Kendall Haven is an internationally recognized subject matter expert on the cognitive neuroscience of story and helped create the study of the neuroscience of story. A performing master storyteller, Haven has for over 30 years led the research effort for the National Storytelling Association and International Storytelling Center into effective story structure and into the process of story-based influence and persuasion and has been designated as a distinguished visiting scholar at Stanford University. Haven's two seminal works, Story Proof and Story Smart, have revolutionized our understanding of the neural and science aspects of effective story structure. He serves as a story consultant to departments in various U.S. government science agencies, including the Navy, EPA, NASA, NOAA, and NPS, and to the Singapore Armed Forces, as well as with numerous corporations, nonprofits, and educational organizations. So as a communicator and a fellow lover of the stories, I am so excited to be talking to you today. So thanks for taking some time out to be with us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, So just to give a little background of how I came across uh, Mr. Haven, I was doing some research on uh, for a presentation that I was giving. And in my Googling, I came across several presentations 
that, that he had done. Um, and I was just, I was hooked. And so as I was learning, reading up more about you, I had to, I had, I had to ask, like, how does a West Point graduate with a graduate degree in oceanography and a senior research scientist for the DOE become a master storyteller that has work related to storytelling for entities like the ones we just, um, the, the ones we just listed in the bio? Yeah. Like, tell us a little bit more about your story. All right. And- the intro that you did made made all this sound very uh, academic and, and cerebral. Actually, it's just the opposite. And that's why and how I got into storytelling. So there I was at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, leading a little research group looking at the environmental implications of advanced oceanic energy technologies. Uh, and would a couple of times a week take a, well, when, when this started, he was four, almost five, and then for most of it, he was five, five-year-old nephew to the park. And we'd play and we'd run around and, and eventually we'd always flop into the sandbox and, and I would make up a story. I didn't think anything of it. I was supposed to just every now and then keep him quiet. <laughs> so I'd flop into the sandbox and I found that if I did that and said, I'll, I'll make up a story, he would sit quietly. So I'd take a little break. As soon as I'd start a story, other kids would just materialize. Mm. They, they just would suddenly appear out of seemingly nowhere. And pretty soon, they the do adults, <laughs> yeah, pretty soon the adults who brought them to the park would also wander over to see why their child was hunkered down in the sandbox with a strange man who wasn't at work in the middle <laughs> should have been. And they'd come over and say, oh, you know, nothing wrong here. He's just telling stories. But more often than not, they would stay. Mm. And I started to watch the adults who would come by. This is in the early 80s before cell phones. So the assumption was if I was talking in the park, I was talking to people who were actually in the park uh, and, and not to someone across the planet. Uh, and I'd, I'd watch people walking by, adults walking by this park. And this is in near you know, the San Francisco Bay Area. And they'd be wearing three-piece suits and carrying attache cases and wearing power ties. You, you know, they were going important places. And you'd see them slow down as they'd get within earshot of the story, almost like I was a gravity well, like they were being drawn in. And you'd slow down and kind of lean in. Uh, And and often people would just come by and stop and listen. Well, there was no guarantee the story was going anywhere. I'm making (laughs) it up just to keep one five-year-old kid quiet for five or six minutes, right? right? That's all I wanted. If they came in in the middle, even if it was going somewhere, they'd never know it. And it didn't seem to matter. And one day it hit me. If I walked into that park, sat down and read any of the reports that I thought I was paid really good money by the Department of Energy to create, none of these people would stay and listen. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They were there because they got that it was a story. Mm -hmm. And I just intuitively, and then when that moment, those little epiphany, aha moments, Mm -hmm. I got that, that they were listening differently to it because it was a story. Now I can take you into an EEG lab. I'll show it to you. Whole different aspects of your brain light up as soon as you perceive that what you're listening to is a story. We listen to stories differently than we listen to any other kind of deliver information delivery. And, and, and that starts to answer some of the questions uh, that, that we've been asking for centuries. Why do people listen to stories? Mm-hmm. Why do we remember information delivered to us in story form better 
than if the same information was given to us in some other form. And the research says, yes, you do remember it better if it comes in story form. And this was just my first observation of that phenomenon. So uh, I said, what am I doing, doing research that no one wants to read uh, when here's this other thing that people are just intuitively hungry for. So I dropped out of science and became a storyteller. And because I was the first person in this country, I don't know if it's in the world or not, but certainly in this country to become a professional storyteller with, from a background in science, as opposed to arts or music, dancing. Mm -hmm. I was instantly dubbed as the research guy to figure out why oh, it is cool. that ah. we listen to stories by the, as soon as I joined the National Storytelling Association. That's how I got into story. Um, and partly I was really motivated to find out why it is that people listen to stories because at the time, not only was I earning my living mm -hmm. as a storyteller, but I was writing my own stories. That's cool. So I, if it was a really bad story, I couldn't blame it on the author. Say, oh, <laughs> I did a great job telling, but it was just a lousy story because it, it always came back to me. Uh, and so... I started running little experiments with no budget, but I'd get other tellers to, to tweak in, in controlled ways, mm -hmm. stories that they told from different one audience to another audience, and we'd measure the difference in the, the response of the audience. So we could start to control and, and measure how, what it is that made an audience respond. But anyway, that's, that's how I got into it. That's Very awesome. Cool. I have had just recently a little experience with storytellers, um, three-year-old storytellers. They've ah. sat, yeah, they've, I have twins, they're three, um, and they've sat me down to tell me stories. And I'm like, I'm, I'm like, is that, is that true? Like, did that really happen to you at school? And I can't ask them because they're like, oh yeah. And they'll keep going and going and going yeah. and making it up. And I'm like, so we ask like the teachers and they're like, what are they talking about? Like one is, Knox, she tells me this story about this witch. And I swear I should have started recording this because every day she's added more to this story about this crazy witch. And I'm like, it's just making things up, but it's got us like starts young. It starts young and it's got us and we're listening well, to her. We're you know, it's exciting. It, it's it's more than it starts young. Here's what we can now say. Um I mean and there's a whole progression that gets behind this, but before you were born. The circuitry was physically set up and hardwired together in your brain so that you automatically make sense of incoming information in story terms. It's been tested in two and three month old babies. Now, I don't think you can get anything out of a two and three month old baby, but these real clever folks who do that kind of research, watch eye movement and, and blink rates and you know, blah, 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 all that. And, uh, and you can see that they're responding to those specific story elements even then. So as soon as language starts to come in, mm -hmm. uh, by the time you're, you know, one and a half, two, three in there, what happens is that you're putting thoughts together in story form because that's the way you've already trained yourself to make sense of the world. So yeah, we, we, think, in, we think in stories. And that's, I think, one of the key reasons why it's worth your, your audience becoming aware of stories. It's not that it's cute. It's not that little kids like it. Right. 
It's that every brain of every person they ever want to impact, persuade, influence, change their minds, their attitudes, their behavior, every one of those brains will automatically make sense of everything you provide in story terms. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter if you think you're telling a story, they're going to hear it and make sense out of it in story terms, which then creates two, three options. One is they just don't get it and tune out. The second is that you provide those core story elements so that they can make sense out of it the way you intend for them to. And the third option, which is actually what usually happens, is you provide what you think is a very logical, rational explanation or talk article, but leave out most of the story elements, and then every audience member at a subconscious automatic level, without even knowing they're doing it, is forced to infer, to invent those core story elements as they make sense out of it. And it is that self-created augmented version that is the first thing that gets to their conscious mind. And any influence you're going to exert comes from that version, not the version you provided. Yep. The yep. more you don't provide the story elements, the greater the, the distortion of your material becomes and the less controlled influence you have over your audience. That's why story is such a powerful tool for everyone to use. It's, you don't have a choice. It's going to get used. The question is whether you control it or you don't. Absolutely. Uh, yes. Love it. Uh, so the storytelling has kind of become uh, a buzzword in our industry and yeah. kind of like in the mar the marketing and communication industries as a whole, but definitely in the water industry. And I actually love that you come from a science background because I feel like that almost makes you more credible than to our industry than to someone who comes more from the, the fine art side. But um, so I kind of, I glossed over this really quickly, but the first time I had ever really heard about the power of story from the cognitive perspective mm -hmm. was at the um, North Central Texas Water Conservation Symposium of all places in 2017. And there was a woman who was talking about that and the power of story and how when you hear, how you're more likely to remember things when you hear them as a story, how... Um, parts of your brain light up that almost make it feel like you're you were there during that story versus if you were just hearing facts and figures alone um, and so that's really what kind of made me start digging for that mm -hmm. presentation that I referenced and that presentation was for the Texas section of American Waterworks their um, North Central Texas chapter meeting they asked if we could do a presentation and I was like absolutely I want to talk about this cognitive neuroscience <laughs> about storytelling. And so that's when I was doing my research. And then that's when I came across, um, I think some of the presentations that you had done at Stanford. Stanford, yeah. And it was putting that together that I, um, that I found out about your, uh, that you've written several, lots of books, but the ones um, related to this, uh, to storytelling were the, the story proof and the story smart. And so I instantly got both of those cause I wanted to like yeah. devour anything about them. So, um, I know that they're both compilations of mm. extensive research that you did, but I didn't know if you could sum up kind of both of those to give, uh, listeners an idea of what's in store sure. for them when they crack those open. Here's the, the idea, um, 
people have been saying for thousands of years, oh, everyone listens to stories. Oh, stories are so powerful. Here's what the research says. Something far less than 1%, depending on whose research you look and, and how they set it up and how they define their terms, but, but always it's far less than 1% of all of the quote unquote story-like things that impinge on you have any impact on you at all. 99 plus percent wow. go in one ear and out the other. You don't even remember you heard them. Mm, story of my life every day. <laughs> so the question is, what does that tiny fraction that does have some influence that sticks in your mind that you recall later that seems to influence the, the, your thinking, uh, you know, your values, your attitudes, your beliefs, your behavior, what are they holding common? So when we started to do research, I mean, real serious research, when we actually had a budget <laughs> right, and could go into a lab and wire up audiences and test them, the, the question was, what is it that controls how you make sense out of information? And then how do you create meaning from it? We are meaning-seeking critters. Every time you always want to figure out what does it mean to me? What does it mean right. to me? How, and and we, we infer that meaning all the time uh, but if you're the one delivering the information, you want to control that meaning. The meaning is where you have some real influence over people. If you control the meaning, you control how they internalize it. And, and in fact, so the question was, well, I am well, do we have any research that says how the brain makes sense of incoming information? So Starting in 2007, I started doing 2007, eight, right in there, doing work uh, that became story proof. And the question was to say, can we conclusively say that the brain does make sense of incoming information in story terms? And if so, do we have a sense of what they are? And so that book is really looking at um, you, you know, what happens at an automatic subconscious level inside the brain when information is coming in, how, how do you decide what it means to you? How do you piece it together? Uh, so th that's that book. And then the story smart was to say, well, all right, having done that, then I started to get actual budgets. So I could go into a lab and wire up test audiences, control the control exactly what they got. So I could vary both the moment when they got certain kinds of bits of information, or didn't get it, uh, put pauses, put breaks in between so we could isolate uh, an audience's response to different kinds of information to see exactly what controlled, how they make sense, and how they control meaning. So what Story Smart then is looking at when we go, go into the lab, EEG, some fMRI, but mostly EEG labs, and test it and then take that information back out to live audiences and test them, what is it that really works? What is it that drives the, the, this? And, and how does that affect the process that you should use to be most effective in the way you employ narratives, stories, or even non-story narratives in order to control how your audience makes sense out of it and creates meaning from it? Yeah, I uh, I have so many. It, it was incredibly difficult to narrow down the questions that I wanted to <laughs> that I wanted to ask for this because I have so many 
things earmarked and underlined and stars and <laughs> yes in that book. So uh, it was amazing. And actually, a lot of it was a combination of the things I heard at that presentation and um, some of the things that I had read from your work is we did a whole episode. Episode 12 is the Water Nerd's Guide to Storytelling. And mm. I touched on a lot of those things that were, we're going to get into that a little later. Some of your, some of the things you mentioned, like the Make Sense Mandate and the Neural Story Net, because when reading those, things just started to click in our minds of, oh, that's why that happened that way, or that's why the public reacted this right. way, or why those customers reacted that way, because we were just able to tie those things back to how those connections weren't being made in the information that we were conveying. And so, um, yeah, I was very excited about that. Oh, no, I was gonna say you do number three. Okay. <laughs> um, and so you kind of touched on it a little bit already, uh, in terms of, you know, what initially comes to mind when people hear the word story, like what yeah. connotations they have with that. And so we'll call them like the story skeptics, if you will. And they get stuck on that word and they can't kind of move beyond that. Yeah. You know, it just conjures up memories of being a kid at the playground or being a kid getting a story before bedtime. And they don't really know what that has to do with them now. So what is it about that? And you've kind of already gotten into it, but why is, why are these things so important to infuse in a communication today, especially for entities like in our industry who are trying to actually change behavior? Um, first, you're, there are three incredible myths that are pervasive in Western, Western Europe and North America. I haven't checked, I haven't done research to see if, it's, if they're really global, um, but three myths that are incredibly destructive around story and they all hinge uh, the most destructive of them hinge around a quirk of English. Hmm. Uh, we don't have, one of the ways that human beings make sense of things is to set up uh, a binary opposite, hot, cold, black, white. And once you set up those two poles, then you can fill in, be with, in between them and use those as anchor points. You can even extend beyond those poles you know, cold, you can go to freezing and absolute zero. So, but, but you need those two main diametrically opposed opposites. English doesn't have a word for not story. Ooh. There isn't one. Wow. And the, uh, Russian does to Ooh. a certain extent, not, not directly, but close. I've been told that Chinese does, but I couldn't tell you if that's true or not. Uh, <laughs> But English doesn't. And so sometime, probably it looks like in the 17th century, starting in, in, in England, um, it, that in, in order to understand narrative, as narrative is starting to emerge, people set up a surrogate for story, non-story. And what they set up was truth versus lies. Mm. Fiction versus nonfiction. And for some odd reason, story got linked to lies and to fiction. Mm -hmm. mm. Wow. And so people start, so there's this intuitive bias, totally subconscious, that exists all, I see it in, in business folks and in government folks all the time, that relates, to, that says somehow story, it, it, there's a negative reaction to story, to that word, because they're linking it to 
fiction and and to lying. So it's like what you say yeah. when you don't have the facts, when you're trying to when you're trying to put a spin on it. Trying to right, you got and and the other one is the childhood myth that stories are for children. Well, yes, children's stories are for children. <laughs> Grown-up stories are for grown-up people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, there, there are those intuitive myths. The ultimately, ultimately, no. The bottom line is that this neural story net that you mentioned that that we've been able to identify in the lab. It's located you know, those those little subregions that are all hardwired together that do that that initial neural processing, initial story processing of incoming information, lower back part of the brain. Uh, they lie between the outside world and your conscious mind. Information gets into sensory organs, primarily eyes or ears, and it doesn't go straight to your conscious mind. There's a whole lot of processing that happens. If, for example, you read something what goes down the optic nerve is very similar to the old TVs that had that, that, uh, that gun, that scan gun, that yeah. would go back and forth real fast and shoot. And, and so it would shoot at any given time, it would shoot information. I don't know if it, I think it was magnetic information to one dot on the screen to make it either light up or not light up, change color, or not change color. That's what kind of the information that goes down your optic nerve. You don't see words down your optic nerve. Mm-hmm. You, it goes to some processors down in the lower back part of your brain that turn the dot pattern back into lines. And then you run over to other regions of the brain and say, oh, I recognize that, that combination of lines. That looks like a letter. Oh, I, I know that letter or symbol. And then you put those together and say, whoa, look, that whole group of letters before there's a big blank space, that's a, that's a word. I know that word. <laughs> and, and you run over to the dictionary and define the word. And then you start to put it in. You're not consciously aware of any of that. Mm-hmm. You just think your eyes are going down the, down the page and you're reading. Because that happens at a subconscious level. At the same time, in that subconscious region of the mind, that's where this initial neural story processing happens. So that you're interpreting that, that information to make it make sense to you in story terms that happens before it gets to your conscious mind. <laughs> so that what reaches your conscious mind is really a self-created story-based version of what somebody provided to you mm-hmm. or for your clients, what you provide to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that has been distorted from that original in order to make it make sense to that individual. The more you conform to and adhere to the elements of, that is say, use and incorporate the elements of effective story structure into your material, the less distortion happens in that version that gets to the conscious mind. So that what gets to their conscious mind is a lot closer to what you actually wanted to get to their conscious mind. You can't get to the conscious mind without going through the neural story net. You just, there's no way in. It lies between the conscious mind and the outside world. You don't have a choice of dealing with it. You can ignore it and let each individual do their their own thing with your material. Mm-hmm. But that neural story net and that make sense mandate are still gonna be in there. I mean, it's easy to demo. Um, let's say one, or this is one that actually I think is in, in, in the book, Story Smart. If I said to you, once there was a very young girl named Mary who desperately wanted some ice cream. All you know is that one sentence. Once there was a very, very young girl named Mary who desperately wanted some ice cream. You tell me, how's that story going to end? 
Oh. Uh, What's going to happen at the end of the story? Well, she's going to get her ice cream. Yeah. Or? It's going to not. not. Yeah, I just see and, melting. And, and you knew it, and everybody that listens to this podcast knew it. Do you know why? It's not because that's the way the world works. It's because I want ice cream. It's because <laughs> that's the way your neural story net works. Your uh, neural story net mandates that a story will end when the uh, character resolves one way or the other their primary goal. I gave you a character and a goal, so you automatically assume that's main character, primary goal. You know where the story's going. Now, that's pretty, that, that's amazing, but I could now go on with that story for an hour. I need you to because I need, a, I need closure. <laughs> yeah. I could have her, I could, I could have her, all right, let's set this in San Francisco in 1868. Uh, and uh, she's, you know, wanders down, that's the, into the Barbary Coast area, the, the really wild part of San Francisco mm. then. Uh, gets drugged, Shanghai, dumped on a, on a ship. Uh, and is whipped out to sea. She becomes conscious three days later, out in the middle of the North Pacific. Oh, I don't like this story. Uh, the ship, the ship sinks in, a, in the middle of a huge storm. Uh, the whole goodly crew is it dies. She's the only one left. She's hanging onto a spar. Yes. Forty foot waves are crashing all around her. Sharks are beginning to circle. Sleet is because it's a storm coming down out of Alaska. Sleet is blowing horizontally, and all the time you're thinking to yourself, "Ooh, this isn't going to help her get that ice cream." <laughs> I'm crying over here. Okay, the every event in the story is given meaning to the in, to the, the individual receiver based on the impact of that event on the main character's ability to achieve goal. Mm. Can I continue that story? <laughs> <laughs> I need Mary to be rescued. She got rescued by the dolphin. The dolphin took her to dolphin. the shore. Yeah. She got off the dolphin, dolphin and there dolphin. happened to be um, an a ice cream trunk. A good humor ice trunk cream. Going by. Yeah. <laughs> Who gave her some quarters to go buy her damn ice cream. Now, we've jumped forward. Notice how if I end a story, I have a choice on, on a story. I can end it negatively. Main character does not achieve goal. Or I can end it positively. Main character achieves goal. Mm. I also have the choice of deciding whether I want you to be happy that she did achieve goal or happy that she didn't. So I can control the ending and at the same time control the way you emotionally respond to the ending. What we find when we're doing research is if I end a story that in your mind is an unacceptably negative ending you're gonna hear about it on twitter <laughs> what well you will do something to want to rectify it yes. maybe it's maybe it's send out a tweet maybe it's write a letter maybe yes. it's change your behavior <laughs> mm. but a negative ending story tends to generate immediate short-term behavioral action but doesn't necessarily affect long-term attitudes beliefs and values Wow. In other words, once you do something, you tend to go back to the same attitude you had before. If I end a story really positively, and I mean it has to be more positive almost than you were anticipating that it would be, then I tend not to generate any immediate response, measurable response, behavioral response. But I do tend to have more long-term attitudinal shifts. Mm -hmm. So a campaign say for water conservation, if you wanted to have a campaign on that, 
should have at its disposal ready access to both kinds of stories. In, in, the, in the classical myths, we call one cautionary tales and the other are examples, mm -hmm. example tales. They both have a role to play. And the question is to be able to control not just the story, but your audience's response and reaction to the story because their emotional response is what drives their behavioral shifts. Ooh, before we go to the next question, because you just reminded me of, I believe it's a story in Story Smart where you talk about how this nonprofit was trying to do some fundraising mm. and they told this story in a way where they didn't get any dollars. And then they shifted the way that they told that story. And all of a sudden people were moved to donate. So for us, like conservation is, um, Conservation is obviously a very huge issue, especially in places like where you're at in California and where we're at mm. in Texas. But there's this, there's this huge problem that doesn't matter if you're in what part of the country you're in. There's this whole um, call to tell water story to improve people's perception of the value of water and the need to invest in that infrastructure and, and all of the things that go into making sure that modern day civilization as we know yep. it continues to exist so like can you kind of go into that story of that nonprofit and kind of that shift uh yes i i will and but let me generalize just a little bit first okay when we look at stories what when we say okay the the neural story net your brain is hardwired to make sense of, of information in a very specific way i gave one example of some of the elements of that with mary and her ice cream what you're looking for are all story effective stories are character based for a character what we want to know is what are they after what do they need or want to do or get in this story a goal we want that to be something tangible and real that we can actually visualize mm -hmm. we want to know second motive and it turns out the more we do research the more important motive becomes as a controlling mechanism for how your audience internally aligns themselves with the story and the characters. We want to know motive. Motive explains why a character wants a goal, why the goal is important to the character. Then we want to know what are the conflicts and problems that block the character from having already achieved the goal. If they want it, they already have it. Once there was a girl named Mary who wanted some ice cream. So she went to the kitchen and got some, the end. Well, that's not a story, <laughs> right? We want something to be there to, to make it difficult for her to get to the ice cream. And what we want to know about those problems and conflicts is the risk and the danger they create. Risk, the, the likelihood something's going to go wrong, the probability of failure. Danger, the consequences of failure. It's what happens if something goes wrong. In a lab, if we take a, and normalize on a scale of one to zero, moment by moment in the story, the amount of risk that's presented in the story and the amount of danger and multiply them together. This is for the science nerds who want to know that story is actually very scientific. <laughs> multiply them together, that tracks exactly with the, the EEG measurements we can measure for, for excitement. Mm. I mean, it tracks exactly with it. And I can, I can, at my discretion, if I'm providing the story, dial it up or dial it down. Because those things, it's easy to remind people what could go wrong. How likely that something's going to go wrong. It's easy to, re to remind them uh, about what would happen if something goes wrong so that you can either in 
increase their awareness of the risk and danger or downplay it and skip it. So we want to know those. And then we want to watch characters struggle. You don't want it to be easy on a character. You really want to watch a character struggle. And when we measure it, the more a character struggles for a goal that is relevant to you with motives that you support that match your own kind basic core motives, especially if the amount of risk and danger they face is, seems to be unfair to you, mm you will always do two things. One, empathize with that character. And second, without even knowing it, you'll start to adopt the attitudes and values of that character and incorporate them into your own value system. Mm. Every time. And it's really easy to do once you understand those elements. All right, so now let's go to that nonprofit. It was a Rotary Club. Yeah, yeah. It was a Rotary Club. And they had a, so it's Northern California, Rotary Club. Ha, um, were working with, uh, a, 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 I'm not sure what the organization was, but it was several nuns who had mm -hmm. a small hospital, sort of a hospital-like thing for AIDS children, children, very young children. It, it was in Tijuana, mm -hmm. Mexico, and they had a number of, of AIDS children. And the problem was uh, that they had washers and dryers that the only ones they could ever afford were the very, very low end ones. They had a lot of laundry from these, you know, 50, 60, depending on the day and how many kids they had in 80 kids. Um, and they kept breaking down these washers and dryers. And so out behind the, their facility, it was like a graveyard of old busted up, rusted washers and dryers. So Rotary club got some money to go down and install a set of industrial strength washers and dryers and now wanted to get some more money to upgrade other aspects of the infrastructure around the, the, the wiring and the, the plumbing and other things. And so they, they came back to do the talk of, and there they were with a picture of the washer and the dryer and they were installed. And there were there, and the, two of the nuns and two of the guys from the Rotary Club. And they were holding a banner, you know, that said Rotary Club, and I was in front of them smiling. And then they came back and said, "Okay, we need more money to to do the next phase of this." Got nothing. Mm. Uh, and then I did a workshop for that. At, you know, a lot of those kind of groups have a, a, a speaker at lunchtime. This was a breakfast group, so it was a breakfast speaker. Uh, and, and afterwards, one of them, one of the, those two gentlemen that had been on the team came up and said, I, you know, apparently I don't think we told the story right. Hmm. So I said, well, what's the story? They, when they went down there, it was, um, it was a sh truly shocking place. So many of these kids were so sick with AIDS. Uh, they were just in bed all day. Uh, but unable to control, never got out of bed, fouled sheets and clothes. And so that in the laundry room was this great mountain of leaking, just, uh, just horridly smelling clothes. And, and many of the kids, because they went through clothes so quickly, faster than they could get clean, that they had just sat naked in, uh, in, in, in their beds. Uh, very, very sick, all with AIDS. Um, this pile of laundry, it, leaking trails of ooze coming out of, I mean, it was just as disgusting and as 
as, as horrid as it could possibly be. The stench just hit you like a sledgehammer and knock you back out of the room. Um, the poor nuns were doing everything they could even w and were facing terrible, terrible risk to themselves from getting ill and sick from, from the exposure to all the filth. They got the washer and dryer down there and then found out that the electric lines wouldn't handle it, uh, that the plumbing, that the plumbing in the lines coming in couldn't handle the water pressure that they needed, couldn't deliver the water pressure that they needed, hmm. and spent three weeks begging, pleading with local authorities to get permission to upgrade the, the, the wires coming in. Uh, dug and, and, and at night on their own with, with picks and shovels and out behind digging new pipelines and, and, and installing a lot of the, the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the short version of the story. And I said, well, why didn't you tell that part? And they said, well, we didn't want to you know, give people the bad part. We want to give them the good part. Mm. Stories are about the struggle. Mm -hmm. the, they went to the, the, they had three sister chapters um, around the state and when they went next week to one of the sister chapters to do the same little post first visit talk they told the whole story about the struggle and went down there uh, and raised uh, I think it was five thousand dollars that day from instant donations came back to their own club the one that I'd been at where they got absolutely nothing the next month when they had their meeting retold the story and got pledges for another seven thousand oh instantly gosh. I mean, it was just like night and day. We, it is the the details of the struggle yeah. that bring us in, uh, and, and that's certainly true for for water, um, because our experience of water is you turn on the tap and there it is. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you fly United Airlines or if any of the people listening to the podcast do, but they don't. They've stopped doing it. But for a couple of years in there, before every flight, you know, in their little pre-flight thing that they do, mm -hmm. they would have someone, they'd have a, a little 30-second video of someone doing some job, baggage handler, mm -hmm. or a reservations person, or a, a, you know, a mechanic who's inspecting an engine. And the whole idea was to show you two things. One is how incredibly complicated and complex yeah. th that aspect of flying is that that the passengers never see mm -hmm. and the other one is to show how incredibly dedicated and committed to doing it well those united employees are Freak. those are all <laughs> stories th that kind of stories just would instantly lend it, it we call them um, in the kinds of stories that that a group like a water agency might collect you could have origin stories. Where did we come from? How did we get started? Uh, you can have future vision stories. What do we want this thing to look like? Where, where is it going to go? How, uh, journey stories. How do we get to the future vision? Yeah. Then there are um, put a face on it stories. That is to say, what does it look like to the people we serve? What is, what is our, what we provide? How does it affect the lives of the people that we serve, the community we serve? Mm -hmm. Then there's uh, who are we stories? And that's where we, that's the, those kind of stories I was just talking about. Mm -hmm. who, what are all the, the, the people that are invisible to you when you use our product? What, who are they? What are they? 
you know, what, what do they look like? How do they, how do they work? The more people understand the details of that process, the more they begin to appreciate the process and start to look at it from the vantage point of those people they just saw struggling to do good work to serve them. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, and that's that's a long rambly answer to I've even forgotten which question, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's all of those all of those stories, uh, along with then stories that end well, stories that end negatively, cautionary tales. Um, it's having that whole family and raft of stories available to use as needed as as are appropriate. The, the, uh, that effective companies develop. Oh, Kendall, I have I got a couple I got a couple follow ups. Okay, the country girl in me can't let that story go without asking. You mentioned the washing machine graveyard. Yeah, yeah. Did they take those washing machines and turn them into metal scrappers to get some money? Because I'm I'm country. Okay, that's what that's what I would have done. Yeah, you don't I, have to answer that. I'm just and I don't I don't know the answer to that. What happened uh, and I to the washing machine? I don't know why. I don't know why they just dumped them out there, uh, other than to say I don't know that they're in in Tijuana at that time. There was a huge market for it. I don't know. I don't know. Now, two things. That is like everything you just said. Um, is I get now the adopt a dog commercials mm-hmm. um, because that is a mm-hmm. hard hard story and and they've they really they really make you want to adopt that dog right then and there and also my own personal experience in the city I was at prior to this um, you know I had my reservations about staying the first few years I didn't know if this was really the job for me yada yada and I met one human being who told me story after story about residents that lived in the city mm-hmm. and they, help. they just needed help they didn't you know she just told me not that she said they need help but she said oh have you met so-and-so um, this is their story and she would tell me that story and how she was um, just interacting with them on a daily basis and that story, she had no intention of telling me a story to get anything out of it, but just telling me the stories of the people that lived there, I fell in love with my city, Mm. you know, and I was so proud to work for them and to do whatever I could to serve them. Um, And so the power of storytelling is, it's transformative. The power of effective storytelling. Yes. Effective storytelling. And, and, the problem, you, you, because storytelling is so incredibly human. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, it has been a dominant form of communication for over 150,000 years. We can now real well document that. And you, so you wonder, well, why isn't everyone just a really good storyteller? And the answer is, they are if and when they have learned the material they're telling in a natural way are comfortable with the, with the setting, with the telling, and tell it in a natural way. Mm-hmm. The problem is most people don't. Right. Um, and so becoming an effective, well, first, take the word storytelling. You gotta split it in half. Mm. Story is a noun. It's a thing. You can work it, edit it, sell it, bank it, invest it, treat it like any other asset. Telling is a verb. 
It's an interactive process. Okay. Even if you video something, the telling really happens when somebody watches it and that interaction between say a video and that individual is, is a, it's a non replicable transient event. Because anyone else watches it, they're going to be in a slightly different place. They'll watch it differently. Um, so that the telling becomes the, the, the concerns and the issues and the skill sets for the telling part and for the story part are totally separate. Mm. I was just working with a company trying to develop the keynote speech that their CEO is going to deliver at their annual conference. And it was a nightmare because I couldn't get them to separate story and telling. And every time we'd start to work on the story, they'd talk about how he was going to tell it and what he, what he was like on stage and blah. And we'd get off on that and, it, and, 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 and it goes in circles. Mm, I think I've met separate, a few people like that. Yeah. Um, separate those two. And the other point is that particularly for the story part, it's true for the telling part, but, but less true. It's, it's it, because there, there actually are more variables involved. But for the story part, Every aspect of story, every of the key elements, every of the key variables and decisions that control how it makes sense, how, how, how emotionally moving and involving it will be, how it affects and influences people, every one of those elements is totally under the control of the person who's delivering the story. They all want to serve the teller. The, the, the creator of the story. The problem is we mostly just don't look at them as individual pieces. We just say, oh, tell a story mm -hmm. and throw ourselves at it. The whole idea of story science and the science of story is to break that word up into individual pieces and then show people how, how easily controllable and maneuverable they are to achieve your desired end, your desired effect. Mm -hmm. um, well, that kind of um, segues a little bit into our next question of, you know, in the past cities and um, people in our industry, in the water industry, they haven't had to regularly communicate with customers mm -hmm. or in a way that customers can understand. Um, so what happens when we aren't consistently communicating with our customers and letting them fill in that information gap with their own banks of prior knowledge? Yep. Uh let me answer two different ways. First, yes. uh, the two curses. The curse of family stories. Mm. You ever go into someone else's ha house at holiday time and they sit around and tell family stories and they mm -hmm. chortle and laugh and you think that was boring. <laughs> My family has way better stories than that. <laughs> they came to your house, they'd think the same thing. Because when you tell a story inside the family, you automatically omit all of the information you think that the family already holds, already knows. Oh hey, why tell it to them? They already know it. Yes. So you just tell them the new information and they use their banks of prior knowledge to fill in all of the gaps. Yep. Here's what the research says. When you go outside the family, you tend to tell family stories pretty much the same way you tell them inside the family, forgetting that that new audience has none of that prior knowledge. Companies, city departments, the, those sorts of things are also families. Mm -hmm. And you get used to talking to people inside the family and you use incredible amounts of shorthand. Why? Because it's more efficient and, and everyone knows all the background information. 
then they go outside the family and tell the story the same way and force every person they're talking to to now rely on their own banks of prior knowledge to infer all of this information that the person forgot to mention because they're used to, to ignoring it, they're used to treating it like family knowledge. And so miscommunication happens. Second curse, the curse of knowledge. Mm. The more you know, the harder it is to go back and remember what it's like to not know. And, and, and really, what, by the time you've spent several years on a job in a department, you cannot accurately at all go back and remember what it was like to know nothing the day you walked in. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. And, and to then be able to anticipate what it is that someone who's in that exact position mm-hmm. would need to hear first in order to lead them quickly along the path to where you want them to, 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 to where you are now. Combine yeah. those two and what happens is people wind up skipping all the information, much of the information that people really need in order to really understand topics the way you want them to. The longer you go without communicating with an audience, the greater that split is between those who know and those who don't know. The, and, and the answer is, if you want to communicate, you got to start not with where you are, not with what you know, not with what you want to say, but with where your target audience is with what they know, with what they think, even if what they think is wrong, start there and then figure out how you're gonna lead them from there toward where you wanna go. The longer you've gone without that kind of regular communication, then the bigger that gap is. But the mandate to, to start with where they are, what they think, what they know, what they understand, stays the same. For example, if you move into a city and you've lived there for 20 years, you can't mm-hmm. relate to the new homeowner who just moved in no. and is trying to set up their water bill. And it, it is from 1985 <laughs> processes and it is a pain in the butt. Yep. And yep. I experienced that just recently in the last couple of years. And, and it was like a huge driving factor for why we needed to update some software or even have, um, a better process for new homeowners, especially all these new or all these cities who have all these homes coming or people coming in from all over the the country at a fast at a fast pace. The people who are making the decision of um, whether or not they need that, you know, new data or the new um, software, the new programs, they don't have that experience of moving into the new city like these new people do. Like, oh, Oh my gosh, you're going to get me fired up. Yeah. And I mean, and it's a blessing and a curse. We have so many uh, professionals in our industry who have been there for decades. And so being able to kind of get beyond those issues, like, is there, is there a way to get, how do you like overcome those curses? Acknowledging the bias. Yeah. Like, how do you, do you just have to, yeah. How do you even get beyond those two the, the first step is of course is just to acknowledge that they exist mm. right uh, and then the way to get around them is to run material this this is writers use editors mm. 
Now, when you write a book, let's say you write a novel, you've often spent a couple of years, and for some people it's five or six years working on a book and living in that world, and then you write it all down, and you want to publish it, because you know it's just amazing, it's just perfect the way it is, and so it winds up with an editor, and, and, and writers always come to hate editors, and the editor says, well, I don't get this part, change this part, that part fell flat. What you're the role of the editor really is to look at the material that they're given through the eyes of someone who is not in the family and doesn't know anything. Mm. And then to comment back to the person who knows, Jeff's mom. then the person who knows can decide, oh, that's important information. I, it never occurred to me that I, you would know that. So w- applying that kind of a concept, um, outside reviewers not to make decisions but just to comment back on what they get and what they don't get what makes sense and what doesn't make sense mm-hmm. provides an amazing amount of information to the to the to the people who are designing that piece whatever it's going to be a talk or a brochure or mm-hmm. you know a video whatever it's going to be so that they have a better sense of how people in their target audience yeah. will view it make sense out of it because ultimately you you don't want to say, well, I said exactly what I wanted to say. No, you you want to have an impact. You want something to happen. So that's where the, to get someone who isn't in the family, who doesn't know what you're talking about to to read it, to review it, to see it, not to make decisions on it, but just to give you feedback on what they understand, what makes sense, what doesn't. So you can look for, those two curses and mm. counter them. That's awesome. Yeah, I am a huge I'm a huge movie fan, movie buff and I'm taking this master class with screenwriter Aaron Sorkin who did like Ooh, a few good men sure. and love him. Yeah. yeah. He's as good as you get. And he's he was talking about how when character writing and he was talking about the only the only character that I know is if the character is a straight white Jewish guy, because that's what he is. And he was yeah. like, if I'm writing any other character outside of that, I make sure I have somebody who can represent that character in my writer's room. And um, I thought that that was amazing. And like another piece of advice that kind of came from a world outside of ours is yep. that that's exactly what you're talking about is having somebody, having people who represent your target audience to help you create uh, content that's going to resonate with them, which is the whole right. point. So exactly, awesome. yeah. And as a writer, I yeah, for the stories, for the fiction that I've written, I run into the exact same problem. Uh, you know, editors keep saying, "Oh, if you have a group, you know, look at ethnic diversity in the group." And I'm saying, "Not if I'm writing it. <laughs> if you want ethnic diversity? Fine, we're going to team write it, and someone else is doing that dialogue and and talking about the, their thoughts because I." It would it would sound it would ring hollow if I did it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't I can't go there. Uh, there may be some people who can, but I think most of us can't get yeah. out of of what we know and what we understand. It's exactly. really hard to do that. Mm-hmm. It's yes, it's very difficult to step outside ourselves. Um, so tell us a little bit about the two things you talk in the book. And you've talked a little bit already about, I think, the neural story net, but mm-hmm. the make sense mandate and the neural story net. Um, the, well, the neural story net is, is physiology. And 
we can now show that that net that it's a network of uh, subregions of the brain that are hardwired together that are part of the circuitry that does the immediate initial processing of information that happens as information goes from sensory organ through this initial processing up to the conscious mind okay it's in that circuitry it it you can't get to the conscious mind of someone and into their memory banks without going through the neural story net which means your information is going to be filtered into story form mm -hmm. in order to make it make sense this makes sense man it, it uh, was first proposed oh, a long time ago by developmental psychologists and in as originally proposed it was if it doesn't make sense to you you give yourself permission to ignore it because we're always looking for a reason to ignore information we're all yeah. overloaded with information yeah. but what we find is that the brain automatically makes an incredible attempt to make something make sense before it says i give up i can't make it make sense and ignore it mm -hmm. and the way we do that is in story form so that as information is coming in um, we're always trying to force it into story form if i said uh, he walked down the street, dust swirling up around his boots. He paused, tipped back his hat, wiped off his brow, raised his fist, and shook it at the blazing sun above him. He stepped up onto the wooden sidewalk. He pushed open the double doors and stepped into the store. He glanced once down at the man balding chubby man standing behind the counter then turned to his left down three rows paused and started down the row of canned vegetables no he was at he a saloon <laughs> he stopped in front letting his hand drift along the cans until his hand stopped on the cream corn Ooh, he yeah. picked it up it's a good choice sighed dipped his head shook it twice glanced nervously at the man behind the counter put the can back turned and walked outside okay now that was just a series of events the question is just think back on what was going through your mind as you listen to it if you're like most people what's going through your mind is what's he trying to do why is he doing it what you know what you're looking for are the core story elements goals okay. and motives that make this thing make sense to you. Otherwise, you think, well, who, why would he do that with a can of cream corn? Yeah. I don't know why I do it with a can of cream corn. I was making it up as I went along. But <laughs> well, Ariane was acting out. out. Oh my God. Ariane was over here acting out everything that yeah. you're saying. I, I, um, so <laughs> I, in your back of your mind, you're trying to figure out, okay, why is he doing it? What's he after? What's he, where's he going? Why is he like that? You're trying to understand the goals and motives of the characters to provide that basic structure and then you can start to make sense out of the events the the things you can directly observe um, that's that make sense mandate and what we observe when we go into the lab is just how much you're willing at an automatic subconscious level to distort information in order to make it make sense oh yes you'll ignore parts mm -hmm. you'll you'll reword parts you'll um change around the meaning you know the sentence, sentence structure of parts you'll add in parts without even knowing that you're doing it mm -hmm. 
And so you'll always think that this version, this self-created version is actually exactly what you heard. We, 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 we test it all the time. It, a lot of universities kind of do this test because it's an easy one. To, it's a fairly cheap, easy one to can do and control uh, with, with students. Um, you know, have them come in, give them some information, then say, did you, did you get all that? And they'll say, yeah, I got it. Can you repeat it? Yeah, I can repeat it. And have them repeat it. And they're never even close to right. <laughs> yeah. Because they have, they have, in order to make it make sense to them, they've distorted and changed it around without ever noting that they do it. That's the danger because that self-created version is the only one that gets to the conscious mind and therefore is the only one that can exert influence, which is what you're trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> so it's controlling that initial make sense process. Is, I mean, that's why people should need to be aware of the elements of story structure and how their target audience will interpret or infer them given the information that say it's some agency wants to provide. And then you have to adjust the information so that you give the target audience what they need. So they'll make sense out of it the way you want them to. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really where the make sense mandate comes in. And then when you start to manipulate the sort of the influence models uh, for, you know, how do you control the, the level and direction and magnitude of the emo their emotional response at the end of the story. Uh, how do you control how tightly they identify with characters? That's also just still understanding and, and manipulating these same core elements uh, and, and the way that you present them in a given piece of information. Uh, but that's where it all starts. Well, we, I, what I came to my mind when I was reading this and the book was a few years ago, we were coming out of a drought in this area. And so while we were in drought, a lot of the cities had watering restrictions in place to where mm -hmm. you could only water on certain days at certain times. And so when we came out of the drought for a lot of those cities, those restrictions were lifted altogether. So people were now able to water whenever they wanted. Um, you know, a lot of people just got used to it and stayed on the schedule. But, you know, some people were like, water all day, every day, baby. And then those water bills came around and there was outrage across this whole region. Like people could not understand why their water bills were so high. And they thought there was a conspiracy between, there are so many cities between Dallas and Fort Worth. I mean, you drive through like 10 different cities, drive, I mean, it's just more than that. It's mm -hmm. amazing how many cities are here, but that every single one of these cities was had some algorithm or we were figuring out how to push water through meters faster, or it was, there was this whole conspiracy theory and I mean, cities were scrambling frantically trying to figure out, oh, okay, like how are we gonna test your meters? Maybe there is a problem. But because people just like couldn't understand, like it's been this long, I haven't been using this much water, I have now, but it was more feasible to them that there was this coordinated government conspiracy, government conspiracy sure. oh, yeah. than the fact that they used more water than they had right. in like the past two years and they were getting, they were paying for it. Right. So We have the same sort of thing out here in California all the time. We go through five-year droughts yeah, right. and all sorts of restrictions are put on. And then of course, water agencies, if, if, if they you know, have a mandatory 30% cutback in water, mm -hmm. they're suddenly getting 30% less income. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so they start to run into financial problems and have to up rates. 
uh, and then water comes and then suddenly for one year, there's a bunch of water and people say, oh, mm -hmm. hot dog um, mm -hmm. and use a bunch of water. And, and then suddenly, yeah, you hit those same. It, 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 and it's all about knowing every, every target audience on every topic, even if it's one they've never heard of before, in their mind already has a story about it. Oh, yeah. And so it's understanding those, the, the story that your audience already has and knowing how to reframe that story. Take it and not say your story's wrong, I'm going to replace it because you, that'll never work. That's been tested on the, most of that testing has come through anti-smoking mm. program mm -hmm. that uh, everyone, you know, people who smoke a lot say, yep, 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 agree with everything that's being said by the anti-smoking campaigns and smoke anyway. Yep. Uh, um, and but you what you can do is reframe someone's own story once you understand what it is and 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 that's that's where then the elements of story science really come to play is shift is being able to shift their perspective on their own story so they come to a different conclusion um, they look at their own story differently and then you don't have the resistance that comes up when someone says your story is wrong i'm going to show you the right story because then there's all these resistance circuits kick in and and we fight that to the death because mm. we believe very strongly that our stories be the even if they're wrong are the are the best ones to have and we want to keep them anyway yeah oh my gosh yes so many things <laughs> rang true when i just while i was reading that book um so like I kind of mentioned, you know, Aaron Sorkin was talking about character writing. And when I think of a great story, I think of great characters. So when I was reading Story Smart, and you've kind of mentioned some of this in our conversation today, um, I got really stuck on that. Like, well, if mm. I'm conveying the value of water, who is my character? And you've kind of given examples already of um, different stories that water providers can be telling. Um, but when you, you said, well, you probably worried about story too soon, that we need to start somewhere else. And mm -hmm. where should we start? Start with what you want to get across. Actually, that's not true. Start with your target audience. <laughs> you start with your target audience always. What do they know for the topics that, you, that you're talking about? What, what do they know? What do they believe? What are their concerns, their issues? What do they think? Yep. Um, and it doesn't Start matter if what plan. they think is right or wrong. That's it, it's, it, we used to call it audience profiling. That got a real bad rap. So now we call it audience modeling. Okay. Uh, but that's, and, and, and it's amazing how many people skip that. Or they yeah. say, well, I want to reach everybody. Yeah. I want to reach yeah. everybody. Oh, I have yeah. to. Yeah, Which is a surrogate for saying, I don't care if I reach anybody at all. Right. I, I just want to put out what I want to put out. You got to be able to say who it, who it is that you really most want to reach. Knowing you'll mm -hmm. not reach everybody with any given thing that you, you're going to put out. Mm -hmm. Then once you know that, then you can say, all right, what do I want? What, of, what effect do I want to have? Do I want to change a specific behavior? Do I want to change an attitude? Do I, what is it that you want to accomplish? Mm -hmm. That sets up a metric that you can use to evaluate whether this worked or not. And that's the only effective metric you can set up. Um, then you say, all right, that's what I want to do. What, what, what's the message? What's the, what's the point? And, and when we think about a takeaway message, what we're looking for is some verbiage 
preferably short, pithy, think bumper sticker for, mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. Um, then link to that an image. Usually it's a picture, but it doesn't have to be. It has to be a sensory image, sight, smell, sound. Uh, and again, usually it's a picture, but it doesn't have to be. That when they think of that sensory image, because our brains are hardwired to, to remember sensory imagery much better than verbiage. Mm-hmm. So if you link those two together, then the image is what gets priority tagging in, in, the, in memory banks, and it'll dredge up the, the, um, the verbiage with it. And third with that is how should your target audience feel? How do you want them to feel? What emotion do you want them to feel when they think of that image? The stronger that emotion, the more, the more neural tags really get attached to that memory. So the more likely it is that it'll keep re- repetitively popping up in their minds. All right, so you get that. And then you say, all right, now, if I could create a story that would implant that image and that emotion and that verbiage into someone in, in my target audience's mind, would that, would that be relevant for them? Would that affect them? So you go back to look at your, look at now the message you want to get across and the target audience, right? And, and if you say, yeah, that'll, that, that ought to work with those people. That'll work. Then you start to look for, all right, what story do they have now? Mm-hmm. And how do I want to change that story? And then we start to look at designing both two things, capital S story, and that is like a whole campaign or a presentation or a, you know a, a, the whole piece. And then small s stories, the little specific examples that we want them to hone in on that will house that image. It's those small s, those, those little stories, those are all going to be character-based. The, the, when we design the whole piece, it'll be designed around um, a, a main character. Um, but it, when we think of oh, telling a little story, we think of the, the little specific examples that come in to uh, enliven, to make vivid a concept. Stories are real good at getting across concepts. Um, and, and so we want to think about... We don't worry about what is the story you're going to tell until after you've designed how you're going to reach your target audience, what you want to reach them with, who exactly they are. Then you can sort of think about story. And then you have a bunch of choices. Do you want to tell a, a, a factual historical story about a real, about a real, a real person? Mm-hmm. Be they alive now or, or long in the past? You can. Do you want to tell about a prototypical person? Um, plant manager at a water treatment plant. You know, I, I don't know, a, 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 someone who hikes watersheds and evaluates water quality, stream water quality and little creeks up and down the water. But you haven't sure. named the person, but it's a plausible kind of a position that we can all envision. Third is just pure fiction. Each has advantages and each has disadvantages. Mm-hmm. And the trick is to understand what points you want to get across and which kind of story will do that most efficiently and effectively. And then you have that, that, that those are really types of stories. Then you have the categories of stories. And I mentioned a bunch of those earlier. Mm-hmm. So you start to build up sort of this three-dimensional matrix of stories where you've got the types of stories, the categories of stories, and the things that the, that, that, that story is good at communicating. 
And then you can really turn it into a four-dimensional matrix, but I, my mind goes tilt when I try to do that. <laughs> because the fourth dimension is really target audience, different target audiences that you want to approach. Yeah. Uh, but in a computer, you can easily do that. And so you start to build up this, this compendium of, of story bits that you've got so that whenever you want to put together something, you don't have to stop and say, oh, 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 I need a story. We need a story. We need to put in a story. You can, you can, uh, you, you'll pull them out and then adjust, pull out some stories and then adjust them to, for this presentation, for your specific point you want to get across and for that specific audience, you mm -hmm. tailor it. Uh, but it, it's great to not have to dredge up and make up the stories every time off the yeah. top of your head yeah, or yeah. scramble around and try to find one that will sort of, sort of do. But again, it's sort of the longer you can delay on the actual stories and think about who you're talking to and what you want to get across to them, the longer you can pl play with those elements, the more the story just sort of appears, yeah. writes itself, tells itself. Well, um, I could sit here for hours and continue to ask you questions, but for... <laughs> Um, for for the listeners' sake, um, I'll just do. We're incredibly excited to be partnering with you and working with you, and you kind of you as the Jedi and us as the Padawans, learning this amazing um, <laughs> amazing technique to storytelling. And we're so excited to be able to learn that and share that with our entire industry. And incredibly excited to have you involved with Catalyst 2019, which is our mastermind program for um, water communicators and educators. So um, there and in the future, because I know that StorySmart came out in 2014, and I know that you've been doing research ever mm -hmm. since. And so we're excited in the future to be able to talk with you about um, all the new and the new, the new and upcoming stuff in storytelling yeah. that come from that. But um, so we definitely appreciate, I mean, yeah, this has been amazing, yeah. but Ariane has some lightning round questions that she's going to ask, Ooh. but we just wanted to um, just say how awesome it is to have had you on today and to talk about this because it's something that's near and dear to our hearts and just um, how excited we are to be working with you uh, mm -hmm. moving forward. Likewise. <laughs> oh, now I got to get pumped up for lightning question oh right. she really she really makes it a lot more exciting <laughs> than i feel like it is on from my end um into it. okay flash mix lightning round here we go okay what's your favorite book that you were reading um or have read and that you would want to recommend to us i know that's going to be hard yes uh my favorite kind if i get to read for myself <laughs> The answer is I'll always go to historical fiction ah. by someone who is a good historical fiction writer. That is to say, they they adhere to the truth, but but put it in story form. Right sure. now, my favorite guy of those that I'm reading a lot of is Bernard Cornwell, who is uh, lives up in New England and has done a, a number of series on different aspects of history, and is just a phenomenal writer and brings history to more vivid life than your than anything you've actually seen for yourself and I, I so I really admire his technique awesome I love history my father-in-law would agree with that because um, I can't tell you how many times we've sat next to him watching um, a, a movie 
And he's like, that's not historically accurate. That's not, you know, <laughs> and you're like, can you just let him tell the story? He's like, nope. He's nope. like, and he'll, and he if, tells if, us the truth. And you're like, oh, okay, that makes more sense. <laughs> if you're going to put, if you want to just do a straight fiction story, fine, make up a fictional world. Right. Can't, if you're going to put history in it, you got to be true to history, but you can't use it that is an excuse for telling a boring story. Yeah. Yep, you got to tell a great story. Okay. Uh, last question. See how fast I am? Um, well, for me. Oh. <laughs> what is something that you do every day that drives your productivity? Um, this is the truth. Ah, good. <laughs> and it is set aside time to ponder. Oh, thank oh, yes. you for that. That is amazing. Thank we, you. in our world, in, at this day and age, pondering, just to have time to stop and ponder has gotten such a bad rap. You're supposed to be busy. You're supposed to have three right. inputs going, you know, and five outputs going on at every given moment. Yep. And yet the good ideas, when you put connections together, comes when you have time to ponder. Yes. And so it's easy to get caught up in activity. And it's really hard to set aside time to say, to ponder and think about what's, what's important, what, what, what's going on, how do, I, how do I put this together in a better way? Oh, that's so, uh, so yes. awesome. We, on my wall, I have this saying that's think before you jump. And it's just a reminder to just sit there and think, you know, and we, we've like talked about how we, um, we get our best thoughts in the shower or in the drive yeah. to and from work because oh, yeah. we have time to just sit there and think. You yeah. don't have anything else to do. I used to love, I, I don't jog much anymore. I, ankle problems that, you know, from being stupid and playing rugby when I was, <laughs> and eventually, you know, the injuries you get start to come back and haunt you. But I used to jog. Well, after you've taken the first three steps, your body says, okay, that's all I'm going to do for the next 45 minutes. Okay. I got yeah. my, and so your mind has absolutely nothing to do. Right. It was a great time. I didn't try to push myself to jog so much, you know, run hard enough so that I was panting and gasping for breath. Cause then you think about the run, mm -hmm. but you're on just a little bit slower. So you're still getting exercise, but then your mind is just free to wander. And that was always a great time to ponder. Yeah. We used to get ridiculed at, at one of our, in our previous job, cause we would just, be sitting around a round table and we, we put it purposely on our calendars, round tabling. Um, so we had dedicated time to think that people would walk by and be like, what are you doing? You know, I'm like we're thinking. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how <laughs> we're we brainstorming. Came up with yeah. ideas. It's you just know? letting know. do its it, thing. It, it has unfortunately um, lost favor in a lot of circles. And, and I think to the detriment of most organizations, yeah. They don't spend nearly enough time just pondering. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is the actual last question. <laughs> um, not just the last one Arianne's asking. But um, okay, so we are both very action-driven after we just talked about taking mm -hmm. time to stop and ponder. Sure. But we like to, um, we're all about kind of that call to action. And, and we feel like that um, change is something that can be contagious. And when you see somebody doing something that, that can inspire you to, to do the same thing or something that's equally as important to you in your own life. So what's the one call to action that you're most passionate about that you believe could ultimately change the world? Well, clearly it's going to be about story <laughs> and, well, and, and the use of story. And I would say it is this, know at the deepest levels of your heart and soul 
that every aspect and element of story is at your beck and call and that they are totally controllable and that you both can and are responsible mm. to control them every time you try to communicate. If people did that, miscommunication would drop off the bottom of the map. It, and I think miscommunication, story-based miscommunication is the heart and soul of most of the problems that are currently plaguing the world, or certainly many of them. Yeah. Uh, and it is just, as, a, as someone who wants to communicate, I don't care how you're doing it. You have total control of all those elements, and that means you're responsible for controlling all of those elements. And it's, it, it's just something to learn and do. Yeah, agreed. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you ended yes. that on story. That's, that's perfect. So, um, but again, thank you for your time and um, for being with us today. And like I said, we're incredibly excited to have the master storyteller, storyteller Jedi to who's yeah. we <laughs> brain. Mm-hmm. stumbled through that. But so thank yeah. you for being with well, us. Well, you're most welcome. And thank you for having me on. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Be sure to visit the h2aduo.com forward slash water in real life for the show notes. We timestamp them for you and we include links to any of the resources we mentioned during the podcast. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for our email list. I promise we don't bug you. We just let you know when podcasts are released and, you know, we only send something out when we have something legit to say. If you're an iTunes listener, do us a solid and rate and review us there. And hey, now we're on Spotify, so you can follow us there if that's your jam. You can also keep up with us and our shenanigans on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore H2 duo. Shout out to our sponsor for this episode, Drop Counter. Imagine H2O brought us together and it's been awesome to collaborate with them on communication initiatives. Learn more about them and what they have going on at theh2duo.com forward slash Drop Counter. And be sure to sign up for their mailing list because it is also legit. We hope you learned something new today, got a little different perspective, or did something that moved you one step closer to your goals. Until next time, remember what one of our favorite quotes says, those who tell the stories rule the world.